0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson today. And so um, encouraging to sing about that as we draw our attention to Genesis four this morning. We've already read the text. Uh, This is, um, you know, we're moving out of Genesis three, which, you know, when I when I committed to teaching through the book of Genesis, I knew that there was going to be a lot of so-called easy sermons coming out of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. I mean, there's a lot of material there, a lot of easy material that kind of stands out and says, this needs to be taught, this needs to be taught, this needs to be taught. We now move into uh, a lot of the narrative stories that, that most of our understanding has probably come from when we were children, when we were taught these things in, in the context of Sunday school and children's church, maybe not so much in an adult setting, in a, in a, Sunday, a Sunday morning sermon type setup. Um, and, and so... I want us to, to make sure that we we move steadily through the book of Genesis, but I do want us to make sure that we, we understand the, the, the meaning that, that, that's contained there in some of these narratives. And so today we, we look at Cain and Abel, but we only look at half the story because ultimately what we're going to see, everything that flows out of the rest of this chapter is a result of the interaction of Cain and God after his sacrifice is rejected. So... Typically, when we think Cain and Abel, we think Cain killed his brother. Um, and that's true. But, but really, the, the focal point of the story is what happens here with the sacrifice. And, and, and Cain's response and God's response ultimately uh, sets the stage for what happens both with Cain and Abel and then Cain's descendants uh, that we see come out of here in Genesis chapter 4 as well. It also serves as a reminder to us that immediately immediately with adam and eve's sin they start to produce cursed offspring right it's not that they produced semi-cursed offspring they're very to, to, to to the best of our knowledge and again they had other sons and daughters but to the best of our knowledge this is their first child their first child after that decision of eating the fruit grows up to be a murderer right like Maybe the most, you know, one of the heinous crimes that we would think of when we think of somebody who is a bad person, someone who commits murder, is kind of at the top of that list. The very first offspring of Adam and Eve grows up to be what we would consider one of the worst type of criminals. I mean, so it's an indication to us of how distorted mankind was immediately because of Adam and Eve's sin. Here in Genesis chapter four, we've exited the Garden of Eden. God has set up good provision to where Adam and Eve and their offspring cannot return to eat of the tree of life. We said that that God in his goodness says, I don't want you to eat of the tree of life because I don't want your sinful condition to be permanent. And we've already seen in the future in Revelation when the tree of life uh, resumes its presence and we see that in the future we do eat of that tree once we've been sanctified once we've been completely cleansed and in the presence of God and and we've been glorified then we're invited to eat of that that permanent tree that makes that condition permanent for us but in the meantime God has banished his creation from being able to eat of the tree because he does not want that condition to be permanent but as we saw in Genesis 3 there is a promise of hope that God is sending a deliverer to rescue Adam and Eve and We pick up on that theme in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. In your notes, the birth of Cain is is the the focal point to begin the chapter here in Genesis 4. And in your notes, there was hope surrounding Cain's birth. There was great hope surrounding Cain's birth. We see Adam's response of faith in Genesis 3. Remember, punishment's handed out, and instead of Adam... Uh, Being frustrated with God rather than him questioning God. We see Adam turns to his wife and gives her a a proper name, names her Eve after he's just been punished. He turns and says, I'm going to call you Eve. The significance being that, that Eve means life giver. And so Adam was responding to God's punishment by saying, I believe what you're saying, that you're going to rescue us from this. And so I'm naming my wife as an expression of my faith. Eve's expression of faith is seen here in chapter four. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. There was great hope surrounding the birth of Cain as both Adam and Eve were anticipating someone better than themselves. Eve expresses her faith by saying, I have acquired a man. And the the original text here in in the Hebrew is the idea is that she believes this is fulfillment of Genesis 3. Right. So she's so excited about this promise. She demonstrates faith in that promise. She believes that God has sent the deliverer, that maybe time away from the Garden of Eden will not be all that long, that maybe we're going back, that this son of mine is going to rescue us. We know from from our knowledge of this story already that Cain is not the deliverer, that he is not the Messiah, that he is not the fulfillment of that prophecy but next in your notes, you do see that there is fulfillment that flows from Abel's birth. There's fulfillment that flows from Abel's birth. It says in verse 2, and again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. There's fulfillment that flows from Abel's birth. Going back to Genesis 3.15, you'll remember that, that God is in discussion with the serpent there. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Ultimately, the the fulfillment there is talking about Jesus defeating Satan, that Jesus is going to come and rescue a portion of mankind back to him. But in the meantime, God communicates and says there's going to be enmity between the woman and between the serpent and between his offspring and her offspring. And, and we've understood that to be that Satan doesn't produce offspring, obviously. The idea there is that out of Adam and Eve's offspring, and all of us could trace our history back to them, that there are two sets of offspring, those that have been saved and those that have not been saved. And there's enmity between the two. There's enmity between the two. Jesus says that if you're my disciple, the world will hate you. And what we find here is the initial fulfillment of that. That is, as, as Adam and Eve birth, both this Cain and Abel, there's enmity and conflict that's going to exist between these two brothers. In hopes of bringing forth life, Eve actually brings forth death with Cain. He will grow up to be the death giver to his brother, Abel. The enmity promise finds fulfillment in the conflict between these two brothers. The division that's based here is based on a love for others or a lack of love for others. So when we talk about the two offspring, the offspring of Satan, the offspring of, of Christ or the offspring of Eve, it's always based on our love for others in First John chapter 3. This picture, this, this reference back to, to Cain and Abel is here in First in John chapter 3 verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. has eternal life abiding in him. In, in the context of this, we also know that Jesus relates murder to hatred, that, that it doesn't have to be the actual physical, physical act of murder that makes one guilty of murder, that, that the heart condition is examined by God. Jesus says, to hate your brother is to be guilty of murder. And so John reminds us that the division of these offspring, that the the, the line that divides is the love for each other, that those that love others, it's an example, it's a It's a a point of evidence that they have been saved. And those that do not love others show themselves to be of their father, the devil, the Bible says. There's historical conflict between good and evil that finds its origins here in this account. So the the division of, of, of offspring starts here, and it's always traced back to here. In Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, in verse 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. This is in Matthew 23, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakia, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus is dividing lines here. He's, he's relating it back to the conflict that started with Cain and Abel. One offspring hates, one offspring loves. And he shows the, the division between evil and good. And traces it back to this story that we look at this morning. So while there was hope surrounding Cain's birth. Hope that Genesis 3.15 would be fulfilled by him. That he would bring peace and reconciliation to mankind. Ultimately all we see is that that there is a fulfillment of enmity. As Abel is born to offspring. Next in your notes, the work of Cain. The work of Cain. We see that. As Abel and Cain grow up, they both go in in separate directions as far as the work that they keep to. It says, now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In your notes there, we have bro- we have both brothers subduing the earth. Both of these brothers are subduing the earth in different forms. Both have honorable professions that subdue the earth differently. So you have both brothers growing up. You remember in Genesis 3, God commands that, that mankind be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth, that God gives work to mankind. The expectation is that that man is to use his giftedness, use his body, use his abilities to work the earth for God's glory. Cain and Abel are fulfilling this. They grow up, they're learning from dad, and they're given tasks to accomplish, both of which subdue the earth. Abel is faithful to take care of of the flocks. He grows up as a shepherd-type figure. The, the purpose being, at this time, they weren't eating the meat. So at this time, he's, he's taking care of flock to provide clothing for the family, most likely. So he has a, a real significant job. As Adam and Eve are having sons and daughters, and they're growing up, um, the implication is, is that, that they're having kids, and those kids need those kids need clothing. And they're tending to the kids at home, and so they put their, their older siblings to work. And so Cain and Abel are growing up and, and doing significant tasks for the family, Cain is working the ground. He's working the gardens. He's providing food for the family. Both individuals, both brothers with honorable professions, both subduing the earth obediently to what God has called them to do, both providing for their families. Abel providing food. Cain providing, uh, or Abel providing clothing. Cain providing the food for the family. Both have been gifted the honor of working. You remember in our discussions about work and how it's meant for God's glory. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Both of these brothers have been raised to do this. They're, they're working not just to survive, Right, like We're not just to, to work to pay the bills. That shouldn't be our approach to work. When we, when we get up tomorrow, those of us that have uh, jobs that take us Monday through Friday, we don't get up tomorrow and work simply to pay the bills, simply to survive. We work tomorrow. We work all this week for God's glory that he's given us tasks to accomplish here on this earth. Even those that don't physically go to a job, those that, that stay at home, in the home, to take care of the home and to raise children in the home, we all have giftings. We all have tasks and responsibilities to complete this week, and they're meant to be done not just so we can survive, not so we can just pay the bills, but for God's glory. And these brothers have been raised accordingly. Next here in your notes, the brothers are subduing the earth and they're worshiping through their work. The brothers are worshiping through their work. We can can see that they've been raised to... To not just work, but to turn their attention to the one that gave them the work. Back in Genesis chapter 4, it says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. the The, 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 the brothers are working, but they're working with the mindset of worshipping the one that gave them the work my notes I wrote down, workers must be worshipers, or they become idolaters. workers must be worshipers, or they become idolaters. The concept here is that we 're to focus on the giver and not just the gifts so So Adam and Eve have raised their sons to give back to God, not because God needs this stuff, not because God needs the fruit that that Cain's going to bring, not because God needs whatever animal Abel brought to him. The, 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 The process of these offerings and sacrifices is meant to work on the hearts of these two brothers to remind them that there is something bigger than just work, that there is a giver of the gifts that they enjoy, because we're prone as individuals to worship the gift. We're prone to worship the gift. God reminds the children of Israel before they go into the promised land that if they're not careful, they will fall prey to this, that they will fall into the trap of worshiping the gift rather than the giver. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10, And you shall eat and be full, talking about going into the promised land, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Adam and Eve have raised their sons to work hard and to produce fruit but to also be remembered constantly that God is the source of their prosperity. And their attention has to constantly come back to him. And it's true for us today, right? So so our Sunday gatherings, it would be it would be far more enjoyable to our flesh probably to say as Christians that we have two-day weekends that we can do absolutely whatever we want to, right? We can we can go to the lake on a Friday night and spend the entire weekend we can, we can enjoy the fruit of our labor. We can enjoy the money and the prosperity. And, and why, would we, why would we sacrifice a Sunday? Why would we have to carve out time in our schedule to come and sit and worship and listen to the word being taught when we could be at home doing other things, working around the house, enjoying just another day of relaxation to help us work better the next week? Why would we come and give money to, to the church why, why would we why would we work hard all week and then give so that others in the church can be cared for when maybe they haven 't worked as hard as we have right like if we 're not careful, God says you fall into the mentality you 've built great houses you've, you've produced a lot of wealth, and you say i 've done this this is my accomplishment he says don 't forget where it comes from so part of the sacrifices and the offerings that were brought. We're meant to simply be a humble expression that it's not about me. It's not about what I've accomplished. That that it reminds me of the source of everything that I have. So we come and worship on Sundays because it it means that we come to encourage others that that our lives aren't just about us. As we're going to see later that we're responsible to be our brother's keeper. The Bible says that we meet together to encourage one another so that we stay faithful. It's not just about you staying faithful. It's about others staying faithful to the end as well. It's why we meet together as a church family. It's why it's important to be a part of a church. Because it doesn't matter just if you're doing okay spiritually and you're growing spiritually. Because the New Testament constantly tells you to have the focus and attention placed on others. Are others succeeding spiritually? And are you playing a role in their life? The money that we give on Sundays. And, and, you know, we've, we've worked extremely hard to make sure that the majority of the money that's given to this church goes other places that we've tried to minimize our bills as much as possible here so that we can give our money away in large portions to help others, right? So, so when somebody in our church needs help, rather than saying, hey, I can give you $30, we can say, no, we can give you $1,000. We can give you $1,000 to help with what you're going through. You're, you've been temporarily laid off. You've got bills. Here's a $1,000. If somebody came and asked me for money, we're looking at $30 maybe, right? Like here, here's $30. I know that might just get you through today. We, we give our money together here at Sovereign Hope so we can pool it together for big purposes that we couldn't accomplish individually. And it's meant to remind us that we worship the giver, not the gifts. We don't worship our bank accounts. We worship the one who fills our bank accounts, who's given us work not just to survive, but to glorify him with our efforts. God says, don't forget this. Adam and Eve are trying to teach their sons, don't forget this. Which brings us to the third point here in our notes, the offering of Cain. So, so Cain and Abel have been born, they've grown up, they've gotten jobs, and they bring their offerings to the Lord. First in your notes here, it's a learned response it's a learned response there there's there's nothing in and of themselves that probably would have would have just naturally said, "Hey, let's just go do this let's just take let's just take some of our fruit and let's just go give it back to God. This is a learned response either. God had been communicating this expectation or Adam and Eve had been communicating this expectation. But this is something I believe they've learned and and grown up understanding that this is part of how we worship God. We learn how to worship from the one we are called to worship. So I believe that there were some guidelines or expectations that were communicated either directly from God or indirectly through Adam and Eve to their kids. The guidelines may have included specific times and places and ways for worshiping Yahweh. You'll see here in verse 3, in the course of time, some of your translations may say at the end of days. It's possible that this was what they did at the end of the week, that this is part of their, their Sabbath, right? So God established the Sabbath. Six days he worked, one day he rested, some of your translations say at the end of days, which could be translated at the end of the week, they came just as we do, just as we do. We gather at what we typically view the end of our week, even though Sunday's the first day of the week, we gather together to worship. And it's possible that, that this was something they did every single week. It's possible that they had a specific place to go to. Dan and I were studying yesterday at McDonald's and, and he was surprised to learn that every commentary that I read and looked at, the authors believe that their place of worship was the gate to the Garden of Eden. That, that as God established these cherubim and the, the flaming swords, that it was a reminder, this is as far as we can go. That we have, been, we have been turned away from God's presence because of our sin, but we still have a responsibility to come to God and worship. And a lot of commentators believe that, that they came to a specific place. Now, is there significance in that? Maybe. Maybe in the sense that it, that it ties very well into the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant where we have cherubim that rested over the mercy seat where they, where they performed sacrifices. But if nothing else, it gives me a visual that makes this more of a historical setting than what I'm typically – I typically, when I think of Cain and Abel, I think of the picture books that I grew up reading as a kid, like picture Bibles. This is a better setting for me than to see Cain and Abel on the side of a mountain with a tree offering sacrifices. It's much more awe-inspiring for me to picture them at the Garden of Eden, where they are not allowed to go because of their sin, offering these sacrifices to God. All right. So um, just to kind of give you a, a setting, I don't know that there's a whole lot more reasoning for that, but just to give you a picture of, of where they may have been as they brought these offerings, it may not have been their first sacrifices either. This may have been something that they had done as a family. Maybe this, they're transitioning now into adulthood and their expectation is to now do this on their own. But odds are this isn't the first time that they've done this, which implies that both Cain and Abel knew what was supposed to happen. So as Cain and Abel come, it may not have been a big surprise to, to Cain that his offering was not accepted because he knew the guidelines, he knew the expectations going into it. Which brings us to our next point. It was a learned response, but we have a faithful and a failed response. So the whole act of them coming in this, this way of worship is something that they've probably learned. We have one brother who's faithful in his, in his response and one that fails in his response. You discussed this morning why Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was rejected. Any thoughts on that that you came up with in your group? Why was one accepted and the other wasn't? Anything definitive that anybody decided that you can share? Was there a lot of uncertainty? Any thoughts at all? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, yeah. There's a distinction made in Hebrews 11 that, that Abel's sacrifice was offered in faith where Cain's was not. Any other thoughts on why one was accepted and why one was rejected? Yep. Which yeah. So so his heart can one's heart condition was right, one's heart condition was wrong, which would would go back to the idea of one being offered in faith and and one not being offered in faith. Any other thoughts on why one was rejected and why one was accepted? You already kind of skipped to the best response, um, but there's other responses as well. So if we're playing Family Feud, you already got like the top answer. Um, let's see if we can go for two and three underneath that. Yeah, so, so if the pattern had been set that, that animals were to be sacrificed, that Cain's kind of stepping out of that maybe here. Um, yeah, so a lot of people want to draw on the fact that Abel's was a blood sacrifice and Cain's was not. When we think of sacrifices, typically we think of blood sacrifices and, and, and animals being shed. But as we're going to see here in just a minute, there were a lot of non-blood sacrifices offered as part of the Old Testament law. Right. They were, so they were called to bring produce as an act of worship. So, uh, and the Old Testament law was a lot of times given in the context of things that were already happening. So a lot of the Old Testament law was meant to redirect properly things that were already taking place. And so um, there's nothing that would prohibit the idea that God was accepting of other people who had brought fruit and vegetables and, and the fruit of the ground. Uh, between here and between the Old Testament law being given. It was appropriate. It was right. Uh, there, were, there were times and, and settings where it was right to bring those type of things. Um, but we're going to talk in a minute about the, the blood sacrifice aspect and the non-blood aspect. Any other thoughts on why one was accepted and one was rejected? Yeah, and I think that's significant too, that there are specific – there's specific language that highlights Abel's being his best, and Cain is relegated to he just brought some fruit of the ground. Um, And so we're going to talk about that point as well. So so really three different aspects as to why one was accepted and one was rejected. Potentially the fact that one was a blood sacrifice and the other was not. We're going to talk about that one probably being the weakest argument just because – God accepted non-blood sacrifices and offerings at other times in Scripture. The fact that that Abel potentially brought his best while Cain did not, but ultimately resting on the fact that the heart attitude indicated whether God was going to accept or reject both of these brothers' sacrifices. All right? Um, as we get into this, I think it's important, first of all, that neither are accepted based uh, – their acceptance or rejection is not based on their personal character, right? So – we don't look at this and say, well, Abel was awesome and Cain was not. And therefore, because Abel was a good boy and Cain was a bad boy, that's why their sacrifices were rejected and accepted. This, to me, looks so much like the uh, the Pharisee and the publican um, um, parable in Luke 18. Remember in Luke 18, 10 through 14, you've got the Pharisee who comes. The tax collector who's also coming to worship, Pharisee says, thank you, Lord, that you didn't make me like this guy. And to all, everyone else at that time, not understanding Pharisee in a negative context, right? So the negative connotation for Pharisee comes after Jesus shows up and basically makes it uncool to be a Pharisee. At the time, though, you would have seen the Pharisee walking in and saying, that dude's, that dude's sacrifice is being accepted. His prayers are being heard. You would have seen the tax collector walk in and think, not happening, All right. Like, like you're a cheater. You're a liar. Which got me to thinking that, that we've always been, been probably taught that Abel was the good boy and Cain was the bad boy. It may have been the opposite from the parents' viewpoint. They may have said, man, Cain does everything right. Abel is our, is our difficult one. Like we thought things would be easy because our first one was so easy, but Abel is a struggle. Right. Think about the, the prodigal son. You've got one brother who works hard. The other one that is just flippantly wanting to spend his dad's money. But at the end of the story, which one do you want to be? You want to be the kid that that wasted all the money, right? Because at the end of the story, the good boy shows that his heart is just black and evil. So let's don't think that Abel is accepted because his previous life was so righteous that he comes and offers and God says, oh, thank you, Abel. You're, You're so obedient. Of course, I'll take this sacrifice. The fact that it is a blood sacrifice communicates that Abel says, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. I'm not a righteous person. I'm not a good person. Right? Um, so neither are accepted or rejected based on their behavior. They're accepted or, uh, um, and then it, it, there's, there's the question as to how did they know their sacrifice was accepted or rejected? Um, it, it's very possible that it, um, was very similar to what we think of when we think of Elijah and the prophets on Mount Carmel, where they're praying to God and and fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. That's not the only time that happens in Scripture. If you want to jot these down, we won't take time to look at them, but in Leviticus 9.24, Judges 6.21, Leviticus 9.24, Judges 6.21, 1 Kings 18.38, 1st Chronicles 21:26 and 2nd Chronicles 7, 1 so Leviticus 9:24, Judges 6:21, 1st Kings 18:38, 1st Chronicles 21:26 and 2nd Chronicles 7, 1 These are all incidences where people offer sacrifices and they know God accepts it because fire comes down from heaven and consumes it. Again, I'm giving you that because I need you to understand that this is a historical story, right? It's not, it's not made up. It's not a parable. So it helps if we're even picturing this story in our minds because this has such significance for us. It has to be, it has to be historical, and we want to see it historically. So in my mind, we're, we're, we're standing before the Garden of Eden. Uh, we've got cherubim here. They're offering sacrifices, and fire comes down on Abel's, and nothing happens to Cain's, right? And the question is why? So we start with the weaker argument, the blood sacrifice versus the fruit sacrifice. Uh, We know that Abel did offer some type of blood sacrifice, the the killing of some animal, which is consistent with with, with Hebrews 9.22, right? That without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, which reminds us again that blood sacrifices were very important, that that God, uh, for everything we can understand, has a blood sacrifice take place in the Garden of Eden. So... If God's teaching them how to worship Him, He taught them through a blood sacrifice. Adam and Eve would have would have seen that that an animal is killed, the clothing is taken from their skin and, and applied to Adam and Eve. That would have been their context for understanding sacrifice. Cain offers his own work, his own efforts, and so we can we can parallel this even if this isn't why it's rejected. The truth remains. That, that blood sacrifices are necessary for our acceptance to God, right? That, that, that blood has to be shed, and that's why Christ comes as the perfect lamb for us. You could argue that Cain's best here, he's, he's toiled the ground, he has worked hard, that, that there's spiritual parallels there of someone trying to offer their good works to God as, as a grounds of acceptance. In the same way that Adam and Eve tried to clothe themselves in fig leaves, the best possible they could do, God says that's not good enough because there's no bloodshed shed. When you made your fig leaf clothing. That that yes, you need clothing, but there needs to be bloodshed as well because of your sin. Okay, so Abel Abel would have been consistent and faithful to do that, to offer blood. Cain doesn't. Um, Abel testifies to needing a substitute. He recognized that the penalty was due him. He knew that innocent life needed to stand in place of him. He heard, he believed, and he acted. God had established that previous pattern of coming to him with blood. We talked about that with the the garden. But then, like I said, later in the Old Testament, God calls for offerings that aren't tied to blood. If you want to look at these later, it's in Leviticus 2. Leviticus 2.1, Leviticus 2.4, Leviticus 2.14 and 15. This is where God's telling them to bring things like flour, grains, bring these as an offering, you know, we, we call for some of those things, too, when we, when we stock people's pantries, right? It's, a, it's an offering. It's a sacrifice. It's bring things that are at home. Bring things that, that you have purchased or, or made and, and developed with your own hands. Bring them and sacrifice them. So so it's not that God has always mandated blood sacrifices. That's kind of the weaker of the arguments. The firstborn versus some of the fruit, the, the idea that Cain didn't bring uh, his best, um, there, there's some, there's some uh, validity to that. It says, uh, Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. It says Cain that, that he just brought some of the fruit of the ground. I do think it's important to note that Cain's sacrifice, even if it wasn't his best, it probably cost him more. His sacrifice probably cost him more, right? Like, cause he planted it, he grew it, he developed it, he picked it, he harvested it. Right. Abel's just hanging out with the animals. They're doing their thing and they're they're reproducing. Right. And and he says, oh, that one's the best one. I'll just take that one and and give that to God. Now, it would have been valuable to him. But as far as his actual labor, Cain probably labored harder for what he gave to God. Okay, so so even if that's true, that he didn't bring his best, he he still brought something very good, something that that he had given time and energy to. But I think we rest on the final point that it was an attitude of faith versus an attitude of obligation. And I think that's what separates these two brothers, that one comes with his offering of sacrifice, and it's out of faith, whereas the other comes out of obligation. I've been taught to do this. I've been told to do this. Mom and dad are watching to see if I do it. So I'm going to do it, but I'm going to hate it the entire time. I'd rather not be doing this. And I think that's what separates these two brothers. Abel offered by faith based on what he had heard. Um, we referenced this, but in Hebrews 11, verse 4. The description of the, of the of the hall of faith and why they're in there by faith abel offered to god a more acceptable sacrifice than cain through which he was commanded as righteous or commended as righteous god commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith though he died he still speaks so it says by faith abel off abel offered to god now how did he how did he have faith how did he How did he know to put his faith in God? Well, it reminds us to turn our attention back to Romans chapter 10. In verse 17, a passage that's used as a a mission mandate, why we go to, to other countries. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So again, what we have here is Abel was taught something by his parents that he responded to. Put his faith in because faith comes from hearing. And so he heard about Yahweh, either from Yahweh directly or through his parents. He responded and put his faith in what he had heard, which is which is a reminder here for us to just kind of step back and pause as parents and say, it is my responsibility to teach my children the object of their faith. That I have got to instill in them a knowledge of God if they are to grow up and have faith in him because they have faith based on what they've heard, that we teach them. We teach them about the reliability of God in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. We teach them that he's constant, that he's good, that he's sovereign. The things that we sang about this morning, because they need an object of faith to put their faith in. And so as as parents, we have a responsibility to teach our children, to grow them up so that they can respond in faith. Adam and Eve had done that faithfully. Abel responded to what he had been taught. Abel's faith, rather than the object of sacrifice, seems to be what's been accepted here. Cain's attitude is seen in his response to God's rejection. So Going back to Genesis 4 now, it's really not about their performance, like we said, leading up to this. It's not that Cain had been really good or Cain had been really bad the last week and Abel had been really good. It's about their heart attitude. It says, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Cain finally reveals outwardly what's really been going on inwardly. He becomes angry rather than sorrowful over his rejection. Cain was fulfilling an obligation he knew he had without the proper thankfulness attached to it. So Cain's just going through the motions, right? Like So he's working. Adam's told him, you, you're responsible to work. We want you to raise food for the family. We also want you to be remembering that, that, that you're not the one that's responsible for it. God gives you the fruit of your labor, and so we want you to offer sacrifices to him. And, and Cain's basically thinking, this is, this is stupid. Like, I don't, I don't want to do this. I hate doing this. I worked hard for this. I've done this. And, and we see his attitude come out now because he's angry at God for rejecting his sacrifice. This is, this is similar to what we see in uh, 2 Timothy 3.5, this type of attitude. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. It's the individual who goes through the motions. And again, Cain may have been a very good boy at home growing up. His parents may have been shocked by this, that he had given all the outward appearance of adhering to what they had told him to do. But then when it really comes push and shove, he's offered something and God rejects it. He doesn't he doesn't want to know what he did wrong. He's not sorrowful. He's not confused. He's just flat out angry. Here I am doing something I don't even want to do. And you're going to reject it. Seems to be the attitude here. There's frustration that if I've gone through all this effort, and you still aren't going to accept it. He wants to offer a sacrifice and get back to his life, basically. There's no expression of faith. In god's ways it's a, it's the mindset here of let me get this over with let me offer this let me go home and do what i want to do type of mindset matthew 15 8 these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me in vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men this is essentially the first false religion that we have it's effort minus the faith it's let me do good things, appease you, so that I can go back and do what I want to do. This is, this is the perspective that, that most cultures had towards their gods, right? They didn't love their gods. They didn't want a relationship with their gods. They felt like their gods were lording it over them. Let's give them whatever they want so they'll go away, basically. Let's, let's appease them. Let's satisfy them so they don't get angry at us and hope that they'll just let us go back to doing what we want to do. This is the first false religion that, that's really springing up here. It's Cain saying, take this and leave me alone. Take what I think you want and let me get back to doing what I want to do. There's no faith being exercised in his offering here. We also know from Scripture that the best sacrifices don't guarantee acceptance, right? So in Isaiah 1, 11 through 13, Hosea 6, 6, Micah 6, 6 through 8, These are all passages where God tells his people, just stop. Just stop bringing the sacrifices. Your heart's not in it. I don't need this stuff. This stuff that you bring is meant to connect you and me together, and that's not happening. So he says, just stop. Stop bringing me this stuff. I don't care that you're bringing me even the right stuff. Your your heart's not right, so I'm not interested is basically God's response. So again, it goes back to... Did Abel offer the right thing and Cain didn't? Maybe, maybe not, but really the issue is the heart condition of what they offered and how they offered it, not actually the object of their offering, okay? Um, Ultimately, Cain wasn't rejected because of his offering. His offering was rejected because of Cain. His true heart is now seen by all. Some implications for us as a church today. God is to be worshiped. God is to be worshiped. God is to be worshiped through sacrifice. And God is to be worshiped through sacrifice on the basis of faith. You just want to write the last one there. God is to be worshiped through sacrifice on the basis of faith. God is to be worshiped through sacrifice. On the basis of faith. Now we don't we don't we don't offer animals as sacrifices, and the only time we ask for flowers is when somebody moves into a new house, right? So, so we don't do it the same way as they did it in the Old Testament. We understand in the New Testament that we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. We we understand that in the New Testament we are told to take care of the needs of others which a lot of times happens monetarily. So as a church, we we offer ourselves, we offer our time, our resources, and our money as sacrifices. But we can be be able or we can be Cain in that process, right? You can come every week. You can volunteer to be in the nursery. You can give money in the back. You can show up at some of our service projects, and you can do it with the worst attitude possible, even if we don't even know you're doing it with the worst attitude possible. You can show up every week. You can show up everything that we do because you feel like, I have to do this. I was raised this way. It's what I've always done. I'd feel bad if I wasn't here. So I'm going to come, but I'm going to hope that it doesn't go over today. I'm going to hope that I can get out as soon as possible. I'm going to hope we don't have anything extra scheduled this month. I'm going to hope it rains when we're supposed to serve at Memorial Day. Right? Like that can be your attitude. Here, here's, the, here's, the, here's the money that I'm going to give. Right, that that that's how we offer ourselves, like Cain. We come, we we do it, but but we're really of no value. And honestly, as leadership, we would say, just stop it. Like, just stop it. We don't need you to come and serve if your heart's not in it. Because a lot of times it does show, and it makes us feel like, man, I wish they just hadn't come. Like, I wish I wish they would have just stayed at home. Right? Because we don't need your money, we don't need your time, we don't need your we resources. Right, God's going to provide that. But we want our church to be people like Abel who get excited about being able to offer. We want people to be excited when our budget rolls out and says, "Hey, our plan, our plan is to have thousands and thousands of dollars to give to a group of 6 to 8 people that can go to Uganda and share Jesus with them." So when we ask for committed giving, we don't want to have to keep asking, "Hey, turn it in, turn it in, turn it in." We want it to be a response of absolutely Absolutely, I want to give because God has blessed me. I'm going to give it away because I know this church is laboring hard to make sure that it's actually being given away. We want our sacrifices and our givings to be in in the attitude of Abel and not Cain. We don't want people just going through the motions. God is to be worshipped through sacrifice on the basis of faith. Now, let's look real quick at the rebuke of Cain. Where this, where this chapter will, will close today and sets the stage for what happens with uh, the murder. The rebuke of Cain. First of all, here we see the loving accountability of God. So we see Cain get very angry. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it i want you to see this passage in the context of what we want our accountability groups to be here at sovereign hope okay i want you to see a god who is sovereign and in control that could turn cain's heart any way that he wants to right now but what we see god acting like is an accountability partner here he's sitting down with cain and says okay we got a problem We've got a problem. Let, let's talk about this together. And I want, it to, I want us to see it in the context of 2 Timothy 3.16. Because this is a passage that, that should be driving our accountability groups. 2 Timothy 3.16. Talking about Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Okay, so, so God acts like an accountability partner here, and he, he walks through what Scripture is here. So God's speaking Scripture to, to Cain here. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. God begins with the doctrine and reproof part. Doctrine and reproof, basic a basic knowledge of right and wrong. So in this conversation that, that God is having with Cain, God comes to the center. Just like in the garden, right? Adam and Eve are hiding, God seeks them out, and he confronts the foundational issue by asking Cain the why question is why are you angry? We have so so if you're not familiar, we have accountability groups here. We've got men that, that are in groups, we have women that are in groups, the purpose being to meet together, to pray together, to confess sin together, and to hold each other accountable when we're not in a meeting together, to, to text and call and email and see how each other's doing. And also to give you a handful of people to call upon because you can't call upon the leadership every time, right? And so it's meant to be a security blanket where, hey, I've got individuals beyond the leadership that care about my soul and want to pray for me and encourage me. And we've challenged you in your accountability groups. It's not just about here's what I did, here's what you did, let's pray about that. It's the why. Why do we do these things? We never stop the behavior. We never stop the sinful acts until we get to the heart of the issue. Why am I doing this? And God starts there here. He doesn't just come and say, Cain, it's wrong to be angry at me. Right? Like that, that's, that's, you know, it's wrong to do this, wrong to do this. We can approach accountability that way. Hey, I did this. You know that's wrong? Like you should know that's wrong, right? Instead, God comes and says, well, why, why are you angry? Talk to me about what, what, what's the root problem here. Why are you angry at me, Cain? It's similar to what he said to Jonah back in Jonah 4.4. Remember when we were going through Jonah. Jonah gets real mad when the Ninevites repent and God says, why are you angry? He's basically telling Cain, can you justify your anger? Now, had Cain gone with this logic, had Cain really engaged in this conversation and said, let's talk about that, God. Why am I angry? God wants Cain to realize That the only one who should be angry is God over his sinful offering, right? So had they talked about it, had they talked about it, it would have gotten around to the fact that, Cain, I'm the one that's supposed to be angry here. Like, you brought me an offering with the worst attitude possible. I'm the sovereign creator of the universe. I've given you everything. And you're going to bring me some chump change with a poor attitude and expect me to bless you? That was the point in God asking the question. The question was, why are you angry? God could have gone further and said, why am I not angry at you? Because I'm demonstrating grace and forgiveness right now. And that's an important point. We don't see any punishment handed out to Cain here, right? There's no punishment. Now, punishment comes after he murders his brother. But God is really treating this like an accountability type setting. He's saying, why are you angry? Why are you angry? I'm not I'm not interested in disciplining you right now. Let's just talk about what the issue is. Why are you doing this? Why are you reacting this way? The injustice is in Cain's offering, not the rejection by God. Next, in that passage in Second Timothy three doctrine or proof, God goes to correction. Now he shows how to make the right choice. God instructs Cain to make the right choice the next time. He offers grace and forgiveness. No punishment handed out here. It implies that Cain knows what the right choice was. So there's no indication here that Cain ignorantly offered this, thinking that God would accept it, and then he didn't. God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Basically, If you follow my instructions, if you follow my guidelines, won't you be accepted? He gives them that correction that's needed. He gives them that encouragement, that instruction to make the right choice the next time. Then he gives them instruction here. The consequence of the choice. God warns about the potential destruction if Cain does not repent. He says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God warns about this destruction. He warns Cain that sin is not a master to take lightly. The picture here is of, a, of an animal that's waiting to pounce on him when he walks out the door every morning. He says, you need, to, you need to heighten your awareness. You need to be on red alert. There is sin that wants to tackle you right now that wants to obliterate you right now, that wants to destroy and wreck your life. He says, you need a wake-up call. There's some anger that's festering here, but if it's not dealt with, you're going to be mastered by this. And Too often times we take sin lightly, and then we, we gain a little bit of victory and think, okay, the battle's over. In, in Matthew 12, uh, we won't look at it, but in Matthew 12:43 through 45, it talks about a demon being cast out and, oh, victory's happened, and then what? more of them come and invade. And that happens a lot of times in our accountability groups. We talk about sin and and, and someone's laboring and fighting for victory, gain victory over one thing, and then boom, Satan attacks in, in about five other ways. And that person comes and says, hey, I've beaten this pretty much in my life, but you won't believe how prideful and arrogant and selfish and bitter. I'm starting to see those sins a lot more clearly now that I've dealt with this one sin. Sin is not to be taken lightly, and God says, Cain, don't don't think this is a joke. Like you're about to be you're about to be consumed by this if you're not careful. God knows what's coming. God knows He's going to kill Abel, but He's graciously communicating in advance to Cain the warning about it. We see the loving accountability of God, but then lastly here we see the stubbornness in Cain's response. The stubbornness is seen that in verse eight, Cain goes and talks with Abel rather than sticking around and talking with God. What's, what's encouraging and discouraging is that victory was possible here. That's encouraging. It's encouraging for us that we can find victory over sin. What's discouraging is this, that, that Cain didn't take advantage of it. His unbelief led him to anger, and his unbelief caused him to ignore the warnings. right? And this is why when, when church discipline is enacted within the church, there's warning after warning after warning. And when the individual continues to reject warning after warning after warning, it leads the leadership of the church to say, what we have on our hands here is unbelief. And what Scripture says is that this person is to be removed from the fellowship because we're not sure they're a Christian, because they are demonstrating unbelief. Warning after warning after warning. Cain says, you know what, I don't believe this. I don't believe this. And his unbelief leads to anger, and it leads to him just discounting the warnings that God gives to him rather than changing himself Cain blames his brother to master sin we must first be mastered by him who mastered it we must be the masters Jesus has to master our life if we're going to master sin Cain failed to be mastered by God and instead enslaved himself to sin His failure to deal properly with his anger led to a greater sin that we'll see next week. Cain takes issue with Abel about his relationship to God rather than taking issue with himself. He's fighting the wrong thing. Imagine if Cain had given as much attention to killing his own pride as he does to killing his own brother. He should have been so aggressive against his sin, but he hated the idea of Abel being okay with God. Right. Like like he's got a lot of effort and and some of us it's the opposite or some of it's the same way. We we put such great effort into our sinning that if we put even half the effort into not, we would experience victory. But some of us work so hard to gain access to sin that if we would just flip it and say, you know what, I'm going to fight the other way. I'm going to work hard the other way. We would experience the victory that we say that we want. And then. Really, What what really jumped out to me about this is that even the best accountability partner can't do it for you. God told him what to do, and he didn't do it. Like Too often times we want to blame others for our continued sin. Well, if I had somebody better in my life speaking better truth into my life, then I wouldn't be where I'm at. Cain had the absolute best accountability partner, a, a God who wanted to sit down and say, let's talk about this. Let's talk about why you're doing this and how you can not do it in the future. Even the best accountability partner does not remove personal responsibility. That we make choices and we have a responsibility to make right choices. All right, two points of application. Things that we learn from this passage. First of all, God is more concerned about my attitude in serving him than my outward actions of serving him. God is more concerned about my attitude in serving him rather than my outward actions of serving him. And that's a question we all have to ask. Am I serving right now out of faith or am I serving out of duty? Was I raised to go to church? And so now that I'm older, I'm still doing it. I'm still giving to the church, still showing up and serving at the church, but it's more out of duty than out of faith. Because our church will thrive the more ables that we have giving and serving and the less canes that we have. Because we can't always tell the difference, but God knows And God is accepting service from some in this room and some not because of the attitude with it. And secondly, while Eve had to be talked into sin, now man has to be talked out of sin. That's important too. While Eve had to be talked into sin, now man has to be talked out of sin. Will we wage war against the deadly threat that lurks close by? We walk out the door every day. We don't have to be talked into sin. Yes, temptation comes. Yes, we have to, you know, we have to yield to it. But a lot of times as we continue to battle our flesh, a lot of it is just just so quick. We're not even making decisions. We're just acting out of our heart. We don't have to be talked into it. We have to be talked out of it. That's, that's, that's a result of the fall. It's a result of the curse. And if we have to be talked out of it, then we have to put parameters in place to help us win that victory. Being in the Word, renewing our mind, putting ourselves around people that can help us renew our mind, not just in a formal accountability setting, but just being faithful to spend time with people that encourage our minds, that encourage our hearts. Putting ourselves in a faithful church with leadership that prays and leads and guides and instructs us in it as well. It's a deadly threat. God says sin is crouching at your door, ready to tackle you, ready to eat you, but you can gain mastery over it. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you and thank you for the truths of this passage. We thank you that um, you you have clearly communicated some things to us this morning about who you are. And we trust that because you're constant and because you don't change, the things that we learn about you in this passage are still very relevant for us today. God, I pray that we would examine our own hearts in how we are serving you right now. Are we doing it out of duty and obligation because our parents raised us to do it? Are we going through the motions? Are we coming to church and serving and giving money simply because we we feel like it's what we're supposed to do? Or are we doing it because we we have faith in you and we love you and we recognize that you're the source of everything good in our life? Father, help us to, to examine ourselves and answer that question honestly. And in the same way that God did not hand out punishment, Father, we recognize that we're not handing out punishment this morning. Instead, we're, we're appealing and calling for repentance where it's needed so that we can change the way that we're offering sacrifices, that we can change our hearts. Knowing that the object that you have asked for has changed over time, now you're asking for our literal selves. And so, Father, we want to give that to you today. We want to give it to you in the days leading, uh, um, leading forward. But help us to do it with the right heart and the right mindset out of faith, following the example of Abel. And God, I pray that we would once again be reminded of the seriousness of sin. God, that we wouldn't take it lightly. That we would see how important it is to join ourselves with other believers as we fight to persevere until Jesus comes back. God, help us to see that victory is possible. Help us to see that we're responsible for the choices that we make. God, I pray that as we leave today, throughout this week, we would walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. We would enslave ourselves to righteousness rather than sin. God, help us to be mastered by you rather than our flesh. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.